0: morning. Apparently the doctrine of election is uh, popular. Uh, A reformed Christian was stranded on a deserted island for a long period of time. And uh, when finally rescued by a passing ship, the crew asked, if you've been here all alone, why are there three buildings on this island? The first was his home, he told them. The second was his church, which he mentioned that he loved and was an enthusiastic member of. When they asked about the third building on the island, he said with a grimace, oh, that's the church I used to go to. This morning we are discussing the doctrine, rather, uh, another way to put it is the, the mystery, the mystery of God's election. The sovereign election by Almighty God, and this is not a topic that I take up haphazardly. This is a topic that requires a great deal of thought and preparation, and prayer. Uh, it is not a topic that is preached with a, a great deal of regularity, though sometimes from churches who abuse the doctrine. As someone pointed out to me last week, they have seen churches lose their love for ministry over these doctrines. That is why we must handle these very carefully carefully. And not treat them lightly. But we take them seriously and we ground ourselves in the scriptures, in the text, and ask that God would guide us well. Because these are truths from scripture and we want to see them clearly and we want to respond rightly as they lead us to transformed hearts that love God and love neighbor. Because at the opposite end of people abusing these doctrines are people who do not know or believe them. I believe much of of this is what has contributed to what we see today in the deconstruction of the faith of people. Prominent people, not prominent people. Because if you rightly understand the corruption of man, the holiness of God, if you understand his election, his atonement, his grace, his his perseverance, then the, the thought of walking away from this blessed faith and its truths would send chills down your spine. And we cry out, Forbid it, Lord. Forbid it. But you see, if your faith is built on sand, and you have no, you you have a wrong or or a weak view and a weak perspective and understanding on the fall and redemption and sin and death and eternal life and eternal death, then deconstruction makes more sense. It, It can seem more logical. And so I think it's important that we would take this time now to pray and ask that God would be gracious to our finite minds in these moments this morning. That he would help us to see clearly and think and act and believe rightly as we turn to his word. So let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Father. Peter writes in his second epistle that we should be diligent to be found by you without spot or blemish and at peace. And he speaks about how the writings of Paul are difficult and that ignorant and unstable-minded people twist and misconstrue his words to their own destruction. And so we say, come, Holy Spirit, and bring illumination and bring clarity that we might respond and that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let me at the outset say that my position on uh, election and free will is called compatibilism. It is the idea that God is totally sovereign in his election and that man is also, at the same time, carries responsibility. And these two, though they sound like they are completely at odds with each other, are not at the exclusion of the other. The Bible teaches both positions. And therefore, we must hold both. And we will look at both this morning. But if we're going to talk about this doctrine of election, the process by which God sovereignly chooses whom he saves, then we must look at Romans chapter 9. And uh, please have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9. I think it's 1123 in the Pew Bible. And I will reference it uh, throughout the sermon this morning, but Romans chapter 9, where Paul starts with election as a matter of fact, because there is no sense in arguing over the, the justice of God in electing some to salvation and passing over others if we are not convinced, first of all, that he does just that. If we do not believe this, then we are we're really just wasting our time with this. Let me at this point quote Jim Packer in his timeless work, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which I highly recommend. As he describes why this doctrine is is so difficult and such an issue with so many people. He says, For it is not true that some Christians believe in divine sovereignty while others hold an opposite view. What is true is that All Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do. (laughs) You laughed, I didn't. And they mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject it. What causes this odd state of affairs? The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church. The intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men. And so we subject the scriptures to our human logic, and we bind it, and we submit it to our wills and what we want it to say. The Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions, but these people, they they do not see that it is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions, that, 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 that the two coexist together. And people are not content to allow them to coexist together as they do in Scripture. But we, they jump to the conclusion that in order to hold to the biblical truth of human responsibility, then you have to reject the equally biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty. And I might point out, as we said at the beginning, the opposite is also untrue. The insistence on determinism apart from human responsibility We cannot explain the workings of divine providence. But we know that the judge of all the earth shall do right. And when we are with him in glory, we will see that he has sufficient reasons for all that he does. Now looking at our text In Romans 9, Paul is explaining why not all Jews are saved, and why the fact that they are not all saved does not mean that God's purposes for Israel have failed. The the reason is that God does not choose everybody and never has. He, he, He does not even choose all of the Jews which is the meaning of Paul's opening statement. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, verses 6 and 7. He means that not everyone who is descended from physical Israel, the, the patriarch who is the, the grandson of Abraham, uh, uh, who, from whom, who fathered the 12 tribes, the one whose name is Jacob. Not all are members of the elected spiritual Israel of God. And Paul explains this by looking at three generations of the nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because each one of them became what they were by the doctrine of election. And, and others were passed over. Not everyone was given this privilege. Election is obviously the case uh, for Abraham. Abraham was from a pagan family in Ur in uh, Mesopotamia. He had no knowledge of Yahweh. His family were idol worshipers. Then Isaac... We know Abraham is obviously called and elect, but what about Isaac? Ishmael is born before Isaac and is a descendant of Abraham, but Isaac is a child of promise. Abraham is way past seed-bearing years. Sarah is way past child-bearing years, and it is supernatural. It is the same with our spiritual conception, with our new birth Our spiritual conception, which is the outworking of God's electing choice, is likewise supernatural. Because as we talked about last week, we we, we cannot produce spiritual life from within ourselves. It's impossible. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, we are spiritually dead in sins. A dead person cannot do anything. And in order for us to become spiritually alive, God must do a miracle, which is exactly what he does. But then we turn to Jacob, who is more the focus of this section, because Paul's opponents could have argued, well, you know, Ishmael, he is not a, a pure-blooded Jew. He's, he's the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Uh, he's not from Sarah. That's why Ishmael is not chosen. And in order to answer this point, Paul proceeds to this third generation of election, to the case of Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau. When Paul says in verse 10, not only so, but also, he's continuing his argument here. It's a continuation of what he's been saying since he's introduced this subject matter. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. This is a remarkably effective example since it proves everything that Paul needed to make his point. First, Jacob and Esau were born of the same lineage. They're they're, they're of the same Jewish parents. So it is unlike Ishmael and Isaac. It's not a case of better ancestry, which could have been the case, uh, the argument for Isaac being chosen. Second, the choice of Jacob rather than Esau went against those normal practices of primogeniture where the the older brother received the greater blessings. And yes, the boys are twins, but, but Esau is still born first. In spite of that, Jacob is the chosen one. There is nothing to explain this except God's right to choose as he pleases. Third, the choice of Jacob was made before either child had an opportunity to do good or evil. The choice was made while the children were still in the womb. This means that election cannot be based on the basis of anything that is done by us. Paul makes the point that the choice of Jacob rather than Esau was made to teach the point of election. This is what verses 11 and 12 are saying. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue or in order that God's purposes of election might stand. This means that God made his choice before the birth of Rebekah's sons to show that his election, his choice, is apart from anything a human being might do. It is proof of what Paul says later, namely, God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, verse 18. Okay, well, you may say, well, is Romans 9 the only place where some this doctrine exists? No, there's probably hundreds of texts, but here are some of the most explicit ones. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Acts chapter 13, verse 48 and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And then the following verse, Romans chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain. What it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 for God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief and truth. It's not a man-made philosophy. Election is biblical. Now let me discuss a few thoughts that weighed into this conversation. One is the thought that election is conditional. And after looking at these verses, it's hard to, it's, it's almost impossible to deny that election is a reality. But there are many, and I'm sure in this room this morning, who have trouble with the doctrine but accept the, the terminology, it's okay, the word election's okay because it's there, but I, the doctrine is still difficult. And so we try to reduce its force by arguing for what we call conditional election or, or, or foresight. This means that God bases his election of an individual on foresight, foreseeing whether or not particular individuals will have faith. But this destroys the very meaning of the word Election. Because that is not election. It actually means that men and women elect themselves. And then God is reduced to a bystander who responds to their free choice. And God's choice follows man's choice. And what could God see in a spiritually dead sinner other than rejection of the gospel? To suppose that God could see something that is impossible apart from his determining will, is, it's irrational. It doesn't make sense. And so to suppose that faith could actually be there denies the doctrine of man's radical corruption, what we talked about last week. And so we see that those, those two doctrines are interrelated They're connected on the deepest of levels. And and, and it makes me, even in in singing this morning and thinking about that, and we'll come back to this again at the end, but the the thought that someone would have some sort of self-sufficient pride over this issue, like God chose me because I'm pretty, This BS, it's not true. There was nothing in me In in the doctrine of radical corruption, there's nothing in me that can respond to God and it is only by his grace and it is only by his mercy that I'm able to respond, that I'm able to even say the words, I love you, Lord. That is the gracious character of God. And now we have to deal with the doctrine of reprobation, which is a great challenge. The teaching that God rejects or repudiates some persons to eternal condemnation. But we have to talk about it. We have to address it because it is here in Romans 9 through two Old Testament passages. Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. And in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul summarizes the teaching in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. If it's not convincing enough for you, other passages. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. John chapter 12, verses 39 to 40, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. John chapter 13, verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. John chapter 17, verse 12 While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. First Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And Jude 4 For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated. For this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these verses teaches that God passes by some persons, destining them to destruction rather than to salvation but we must make distinctions between election and reprobation. There has to be distinction here. Does God determine the destinies of individuals in exactly the same way so that without any consideration of what they do or might do, he assigns to one heaven and the other hell? We know he does this in the case of those who are being saved because we have been told that election has no basis in any good seen or foreseen in those who are elect. Paul's chief point in Romans 9 is that salvation is due entirely to God's mercy and not to any good that might be imagined to to reside within us in ourselves. The question is whether this can be said of the reprobate as well. Has God consigned them to hell apart from anything that they have done, that is apart from their deserving it? And here we must conclude that they are not the same. While the ultimate effect is the same, the cause is different. The reason why some believe the gospel and are saved by it is that God intervenes in their lives to bring them to faith. But those who are lost, and this is crucial that we understand this, are not caused by God to disbelieve. They do that all by themselves. The Westminster Confession speaks of God ordaining the lost to dishonor and wrath for their sin. That makes reprobation the opposite of a random action. The lost are not sent to hell because God consigns them there randomly, but as a judgment for sin. We dare not forget, wrote Abraham Kuyper, that while God, according to the secret of his counsel, elects those who are to be saved, this same omnipotent God has made us morally responsible so that we are lost, not because we could not be saved, but because we would not. Election is active. Reprobation is passive. In election, God actively intervenes to rescue those who deserve destruction. Whereas in reprobation, God passively allows some to receive the just punishment they deserve for their sins. And so we read verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? By no means. God forbid it. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? These challenging words from Paul, but who are you, O man? to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What do these doctrines drive us to? How do we respond to this teaching in our daily lives? I have seen believers, professed believers, abuse this doctrine to the point of of living an ungodly life because they believe they are elect. And if it does not depend on me, then then I can live however I want to live. That is not what Scripture teaches, though. They bear no fruit in their life. They have no love for God and they have no love for neighbor. Yes, God does the saving work, but where is the evidence of the changed life? And who am I to receive mercy and grace? There is nothing in me that God sees and says, I'll take that one and I'll take that one and I'll take that one because they have good in them. They have something that I love. No, it's not true. If we could enter into the mind of God, who knows what we would see? And, and, and thinking of last week and this doctrine of, of, of radical corruption and it makes me consider, what does it look like to live among the, the zombie population, the, the use of uh, John Gerstner's illustration, you know, "The Walking Dead." What does it look like for us when we walk out of this place and we go to Super Bowl parties or we go back to work on Monday? What does my life and my character look like on a daily basis? Do I live an honorable life among people? Do I set apart Christ in my heart, always being prepared to give the answer for the hope that I have in Christ and doing that with gentleness and respect? Do I not live in fear of that community who who are yet to know Christ? Why? Why? We have life, they do not. We have forgiveness, they do not. We have freedom, they do not. We have confidence that we have been chosen and set apart and destined for the new heavens and the new earth. They have, what, fear? So how would you treat someone like that who is walking blindly in the darkness? Do you condemn them as people who hold Tightly to this doctrine, sometimes do? Do you be compassionate and consider the reality of the spiritual realm that is taking place all around us unseen? And so we say, You don't build walls, you build bridges. This was Christ's ministry. And this doctrine of election reminds us that the saving work is God's work alone, not in the sense that we are in no way called ourselves, but rather that we see how he uses us, how he can use us as a means for his work. And the work of evangelism, and then the work of the proclamation of the good news. Because here's the reality. None of us walk around with signs on our heads saying, elect and reprobate. Skip them, skip them, skip them. Oh, I'll talk to this one. That's just not the reality. I have no idea if the person that I share Christ with is 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 will respond positively or will respond negatively, or even if they respond negative to me at that moment, will they respond positively later on? I don't know. I have no idea whether they will accept or reject, whether they are elect or reprobate. I'm not God, I don't make that decision. But at the same time, I recognize and I understand the privilege that I have in knowing Christ. (laughs) The privilege that I have in being forgiven. The privilege that I have in being redeemed. Something I cannot build a tower towards something I cannot work to accomplish. And then I'm given new eyes to see this world through this lens. How could I not share with people who are yet to see There is no one who is too far gone. There is no one from human reasoning or discernment we can say will never be saved. I did an interview with, uh, the other day with a Christian apologist in Los Angeles, and I told her that I had interviewed Daryl Strawberry recently. And she said, what? Daryl Strawberry? I said, yeah, he's been saved All she could remember was when he was lost and chasing women and drugs and alcohol. But God drew him in because he belonged to him. Rosaria Butterfield, a feminist, lesbian, anti-God, anti-Christian, radical college liberal arts professor, I don't know how much further outside you could be. And yet God drew her in through different people because she belonged to him. How will God use you for his purposes as he draws his elect to him? Don't abuse the doctrine to become apathetic Don't say that's apostles, that's my old church. (laughs) Embrace it, embrace it, embrace it to be humbled and effective. We say, why Lord, why me? How could you show this grace to me? How good this news is to share with others. I think we need to hear Paul's words from the very beginning of this chapter because they shine a light on my own heart. I was reading this with Jeremy Izell this week and I looked up and he was in tears. <laughs> Paul says I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Is that your heart? Could, could you say these words with Paul, that you would wish that you would be accursed for those who are lost. I don't think that's my heart. Let's commit this to the Lord and ask that he would give us eyes to see the world that we live in. Father, how... There's no words to say Isaiah, when he experiences even a slight vision of your holiness and your grandeur and the train of your robe and your victories filling the temple, and he says, I am undone. But Lord, if this, if the doctrine is that we saved ourselves, that there's something in us that made us choose, then it's not you. Then we we glorify ourselves, even in you are just making it available, but the reality is that you have chose us. You set us apart. You planted our feet on the rock so that we can look back and say, it was nothing that I have done. It is only God through Christ and his glory. Praise him. Praise him. For I'm, I was undeserving, but you chose me. And then Isaiah, when asked who will go as representative, and he says, here I am, send me. That this would be our words too. That we would even have the heart of Paul. That our desire for the lost would be so desperate. That we would even consider ourselves accursed, though it is impossible Father, grant us these hearts. Could we imagine the untold amounts that would come in if they understood a a person who has a heart like that? The deepest desire for them to come to the knowledge of saving faith. And Father, as we're about to take part in this, your Lord's Supper, this table that we share and remember, the body, those of us gathered together in this room, the universal church that you have called and set apart, that you would give us eyes to see and love this gathering together of those of us who have been called out of darkness and set into the glorious light of your son. We pray this in Christ's name.